Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this podcast, I read through the works of great American writers 100 pages at a time while giving my commentary, my thoughts, my opinions, and some historical context from time to time. So thank you so much for listening. In this episode, we'll be beginning a, a two-part series on Arna Bontemps' Black Thunder, a novel of Gabriel's Revolt. So let's start by looking at who this guy Arna Bone Temps was. Born in 1902 in Louisiana into a working class family. His father was a bricklayer and part-time musician. When he was four, he moved to California. Or his family moved to California. His family also converted to Seventh-day Adventism, which would be an important uh, role in his life, especially in his career. He got his education through an Adventist school, but in many ways he was mostly self-educated using the Los Angeles Public Library as his kind of private school. As an adult, he moved to Harlem, and like many other the writers we've looked at this in this series on the Harlem Renaissance, he was able to work his way into the literary culture of, of Harlem. There he taught at an Adventist school, he wrote for various black journals, and he started publishing novels and other writings. His first novel was condemned by W.E.B. Du Bois for focusing on the low-life aspects of black life. But it seems interesting, and I might want to look at it someday. It, it's called God Sends Sunday, and it was about his great uncle, who was a bit of a vagabond wanderer, um, and it just explores his life. Now, Du Bois always had a critical eye towards many of the Harlem Renaissance writers because they weren't pure propaganda. He advocated a kind of propaganda uh, instead of people writing about life as it is. He thought literature should show the best of black life and kind of be propaganda to whites as a, as a weapon against white supremacy and Jim Crow. But many Harlem Renaissance writers just tried to write about their own experiences. Um, and Arna Bontemps is one of those. But as we'll see, he is still very political. And this is one of the more political novels of, of the Harlem Renaissance. After his uh, school in Harlem closed down, his Adventist school there, he had to get a new job, which he eventually found in Alabama at Oakwood College, which was another Adventist-affiliated school. He was writing extensively on Haiti at this time, and I wonder what impact his upbringing had on that. He was from Louisiana, which had that more of a French influence and maybe more connections to the Caribbean or the French Caribbean and, and Haiti. But anyways, he wrote, in one of the books he wrote was a children's book about the young people of Haiti. In 1936, he published Black Thunder. This was his brilliant novel that we're going to look at in this episode on Gabriel's Revolt of 1800. He wrote directly on the Haitian revolutionaries in a later book, 1939's Drums at Dusk. In 1943, he went to college in library science and became a librarian at Fisk University, a, a college for African-Americans. And he became an important historian of African-American and Caribbean studies in his own right um, through his job as a librarian at Fisk. He died in 1973 after writing and editing many volumes. He worked on collecting materials for younger readers, and this is especially significant. And I would love to see the Library of America publish more of his work. You know, we could learn a lot. We could learn a lot more about this very interesting writer. So on to Black Thunder. Now, this novel is obviously about Gabriel's revolt. So let's just start by looking at what the Wikipedia entry on Gabriel has to say. Gabriel Proster, as he's sometimes known, but that's taken the name of his master as his last name. So I'll just call him Gabriel. 
Uh, we'll see what it says about his revolt. I don't think there's an entry on the Gabriel revolt itself, but there's one on on the man. So let's see what it says. Then I can focus not so much on the plot of the novel, but more on the themes and characterization. All right, so uh, the Wikipedia article actually agrees with me. So Gabriel was born in 1776, died in 1800 as a result of the rebellion. Um, and it even says here today, commonly, if incorrectly, known as Gabriel Proser. Um, so he was literate. Uh, he planned the slave revolt in, in Richmond. So let's just jump down to it, uh, which will give us the major events of what happened. So Gabriel, this is quoting Wikipedia. Gabriel planned the revolt during the spring and summer of 1800. On August 30th, 1800, Gabriel intended to lead slaves into Richmond, but the rebellion was postponed because of rain. The slave owners had suspicions of the uprising, and two slaves told their owner, Mosby Shepherd, about the plans. He warned Virginia's governor, James Monroe, who called out the state militia. Gabriel escaped down river to Norfolk, but he was spotted and betrayed there by another slave for a reward offered by the state. The slave did not receive the full award. Gabriel was returned to Richmond for questioning, but he did not submit. Gabriel, his two brothers, and 23 other slaves were hanged. So that's all it says there. Um, so we can jump ahead to influence. There's a new section in the Wikipedia article called Influence. Gabriel's revolt was notable not because of its results, the rebellion was quelled before it could begin, but because of its potential for mass chaos and widespread violence. In Virginia in 1800, 39.2% of the total population were slaves. They were concentrated on the plantations in the Tidewater area and west of Richmond. No reliable numbers existed regarding slaves and free black conspirators. Most likely the number of men actively involved numbered only several hundred. What else is interesting here? Some Virginia slaveholders were nervous about the sharp increase in the number of free blacks in slave states. They were uneasy as well by, as well by the violent aftermath of the French Revolution and the uprising of slaves in the 1790s in Saint-Domingue. In 1792, France granted equal, social equality to free people of color, and in 1793, French revolutionary commissioners in Saint-Domingue granted freedom to all the slaves. Whites and free people of color, some of whom were also slaveholders, immigrated as refugees to the U.S. during the upheaval now known as the Haitian Revolution. All right. That's, that's an interesting theme that comes up. Um, one more section here. Prior to the rebellion, Virginia law had allowed education of slaves to read and write and training of slaves in skilled trades. After this rebellion and after a second conspiracy was discovered in 1802 among enslaved boatmen along the Appomattox and Roanoke Rivers, the Virginia Assembly in 1808 banned hiring out of slaves and required free blacks to live to leave the state within 12 months or face re-enslavement. Free blacks had to petition the legislature to stay in the state and were often aided in that goal by white friends or allies. In addition to the Catalask of Gabriel's Rebellion, the law against residency was promoted by a marked increase in population of free blacks of color in Virginia, as noted above in the manumission of slaves after the American Revolution. The very existence of free blacks challenged the conditions of slave states. All right, I think that's enough. You can go look at this article um, on Gabriel or Gabriel Proser, which has a lot of information here. Um, I think Arna Bontep's novel more or less you know, the plot of it is more or less the same. Uh, you have the rebellion being planned. The rebellion fails because of rain. And then you have the aftermath, which includes the, the execution of, of our hero, Gabriel. 
and other people. We also have the betrayal. In fact, the, we could say the main character of the novel isn't even Gabriel, but rather one of the slaves who betrays the rebellion. So this novel has a very has a couple settings. It's a bit disjointed in that it's existing in several places at once. So we're getting different perspectives on this revolt, but they don't always overlap very well. So it's it's not like they all come together in a nice bow. We we simply have these like different settings and Bone Temps bounces between them as he needs to tell his story. Um, but I, I think it works. Uh, the first setting is the community of enslaved men and women of Richmond who organized the revolt, attempt it, and then experience their destruction, the aftermath of the failed revolt. And as the Wikipedia article sort of suggests, there was a lot of the mobility among African Americans in in Virginia at the time. You know, people were being hired out. Uh, they worked as transportation workers. They had other ways of moving around, and this helped create this this conspiracy because um, they were able to form organizations. They were able to get news about Haiti. They were able to kind of uh, interact and coordinate um, what they hoped to have been. A, they hoped it would have been a three pronged attack on the city of Richmond. So that required a lot of coordination and mobility among the people. The second setting is particularly the radical journalists of French background or people who are sympathetic to France and the French Revolution. They tended towards anti-slavery, but they were sometimes a bit ambivalent about the rising of the slaves and worry that the violence of the slave revolt could negatively affect their efforts. And we'll take uh, a closer look at this group of people because um, they're going to play a major role in the story. And I think they reflect an attitude towards black politics that Arna Bontemps thought was still alive and well in, in the early 20th century. The third setting would just be, I guess, the broader community. We're given slices of life in Richmond. We're given, uh, you know, what the politicians were thinking, what Monroe was thinking. We get newspaper reports. We get the docks. We get the pubs, newspapers, politics. We get the slave owners. So we kind of get the, the broader cross-sections of life in and around Richmond. So that's kind of a third setting, but that actually makes up several settings. The final would be the international context of Gabriel's Revolt, which really comes down to the Caribbean and Haiti. Uh, you have um, migrants from the Caribbean, uh, former slaves from the Caribbean living in the United States, talking about um, revolution and influencing the blacks in, in Virginia. Our main character is Ben. A slave owned owned by Mosley Shepard, who joins Gabriel's revolt, joins the conspiracy. Um, he's given a job. He fails to do it. Instead, he betrays the uprising and becomes directly responsible for the deaths of many slaves and the failure of the conspiracy. He is seen as largely under the control of his master and is far from holding on to the independent spirit that's needed to be part of this culture of rebellion. So he's he's the one who who has too much love for his master, I suppose is the way to say it, and he can't overcome that feeling of, of love for his master and instead has to betray the, the uprising. Gabriel, who is actually a, a more of a symbolic character throughout much of the novel, is presented very differently. When we first are introduced to him, we're, 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 he's shown as a fighter. Um, quote, Long before Solomon and Dictor had fought, Gabriel was 15 then, but he remembered well the fierce struggle his oldest brother put up against the powerful barrel-chested black that ruled the bow of their slaves in the place of the usual white overseer. He remembered this shiver of powerful muscles and the 
blowing of powerful nostrils near the ground. And he remembered the thud of blows in the darkness after night fell in the contest. Finally, too, he remembered how they had brought Solomon home unconscious. And then it follows us up with a description of, of Gabriel's own brawling and fighting as, as a young man. When we're, throughout the first few chapters, we're introduced to other major characters. Uh, one of the most important is Monsieur Crusoe, I guess it's pronounced C-R-E-U-Z-O-T. He's a French national Republican publisher. Um, and he's presented as very working class. The first thing we have of him is, is, is in this kind of huge smock, inked thoroughly, so it's all black, and you know he's presented as very working class. Um, but he's also very radical, very strongly Republican, strongly anti-slavery, and we'll hear a little bit about his uh, his words and his feelings in a little bit. Now, the entire environment of Richmond is alight with news from Haiti and France, and revolution is in the air. In fact, in the first section of the novel, the whole first section of the novel is called Jacobins. And because of this, and it doesn't refer just to the radicalized slaves, it's also often many of the people of Richmond. So there's one of the results of the failure of Gabriel's revolt for Bontemp is the death of that kind of radical Republican Jacobin community in, in Richmond itself. Now, much of this seems to be the direct cause of the revolutions in Haiti and France, obviously. And here's just a quote from an early chapter. They paused. They were blue shadows outside the black window. Through the front, yellow sunlight slanted the shafts. After a while, Alexander Biddenhurst said vigorously, The equality of man, there's the pill. You've had filthy nobles in France. Here we have planter aristocrats. We have merchants, the poor whites, the free blacks, the slaves. Classes, classes, classes. I tell you, Monsieur Crusoe, the whole world must know that these are not natural distinctions, but are official ones. Liberty, equality, and fraternity will have to be one for the poor and the weak everywhere if your own revolution is to be permanent, if it is to awaken the masses. So they have a lot of these kind of conversations that are heavily influenced by the rhetoric of the French Revolution. In fact, there's evidence that the Caribbeans are working in the ports spreading revolutionary propaganda. We are told that two French blacks uh, from Martinique were distributing among free colored folks and slaves, quote, free colored folks and slaves, various propaganda documents. And these boys were assisted, we were also told these boys were assisted by the United, a United Irishman. So we have Irish Republicans working with Caribbean Republicans spreading propaganda. So it's a really interesting environment in Richmond at the time, and it's really ripe for revolution. And the talk even spreads to the public establishments in bars of Richmond. And I'll, I'll quote again here. My name will be mud if folks start saying he'll come up here and get drunk on peachy brandy and too big talk about how all the money in the country ought to be divided up equal amongst everyone. The rich white folks in here town lestwise the men folks aren't going to put up with no such running on next time you knock on the door i'm coming to company full house and if i don't i'm going to come across myself leaving town one of these fine mornings well this brings me to a very important book it was written about 17 years ago now it was it's written by uh, a maritime historian 
Marcus Redeker and a historian of England, uh, Peter Leinbaugh, um, both Marxist, both kind of left-wing historians. The book is called The Many-Headed Hydra, Slaves, Sailors, Commoners, something or other, and the Revolutionary Atlantic. Okay, so that that's the name of the book. It, it's a really wonderful book, actually, and it goes through different revolts, slave revolts, uprisings, international, interracial, international revolts all across the Atlantic, really from... 1600 all the way till till the abolitionist movement of the of the early 19th century and the model is the hydra so the idea here is that the rebellions are the hydra and you cut off one head and two grow in its in its place right and the state the government puts on the role of hercules right trying to suppress the hydra um, it's a really wonderful book it's a, i urge everyone to read it to look at it um, and you really get the feeling of this in this novel, this setting of internationalism, of rebellion, of just under the surface simmering, uh, connection by ports, how sea is connecting different revolutionary conspiracies. It's really a great feeling. It's set up really well in this novel. It's, it's a lot of fun to read. So after setting up the situation, we learn more about the slave conspiracy, which is already well developed when the, slave, when the novel opens. We learn that religion is playing a major role in the development of the conspiracy through this character, Mingo, who's kind of a, a slave preacher of, of sorts, and he kind of gives the religious perspective. Most of the other characters are more influenced by republicanism and just general anti-slavery sentiments, but Mingo kind of reflects the spiritual religious aspect. Now, what really sparks the acceleration of this conspiracy is the death of Bundy, a slave who was beaten to death by his master, essentially who was run over by the master's horse pretty brutally. It was straight up murder, actually. Um, this is the event that brings Ben into the conspiracy. Um, and we've met Ben before, and, you know, he's always around his master, and he's shown being close to his master, but he's also shown not to be entirely content in this situation. And the death of Bundy helped bring him into the conspiracy. And he's asked to make a solemn vow, and there's an entire ritual that brings him into the rebellion. And this seems building off of maybe what was going on in Haiti, because some of the stories out of the Haitian Revolution talk about the secret societies, rituals, and the importance of, of, of religion in kind of binding together people in, in conspiracies of resistance. So the plan they have, not to get into too much detail here, is to seize Richmond. Uh, and they have kind of, the, Gabriel's organized something like 1,100 slaves. The, he thinks that's enough to seize Richmond. They were going to coordinate to attack the city from three sides, then take its weapons, take its arms, then spread slave revolt through the entire region. Um, and they seem to be modeling off of, off of what happened in Haiti. Um, of course, as we saw from the Wikipedia article, it wasn't a black majority, but it was still 40% black. So there were a lot of slaves there that could have been mobilized into a rebellion. I don't think this was entirely a delusional uprising by any stretch of the imagination. But, um, you know, whether it could have succeeded or not, had it not rained, I don't want to get into here. But The important elements for the slave revolt to work are essentially timing and then secrecy. The novel shifts back and forth between the slaves and the radical journalists. And what the two sides agree upon is the strong influence of the Haitian slave revolt on the thinking of, of Virginia's slaves. 
So there's really a grapevine telegraph going on here, and I think the mobility of slaves in Virginia, um, you know, meant they were well connected to news. You know, they weren't isolated from what was actually going on in the world. Quote, uh, this is something that uh, Monsieur Crusoe thinks about. Quote, the blacks are whispering something's up. Suddenly, and for the first time, the Frenchman seriously wondered if there were reasons for the observation. Actually, could it be? Could these tame things imagine liberty, equality? Of course, he knew about San Domingo, and the stories had filtered through about whether or not the blacks themselves were capable of that divine discontent that turned the mill of destiny was not answered. There had been, or there had been told, strong forces at work in France that had possibly been paid an experienced agitator supporting by groups of people who sometimes had political as well as humanitarian aims. Young mulattoes had been to Paris to school and have met certain of the Amis de Noir. The blacks were not discontented. They couldn't be. They were without the necessary faculties. End quote. So Crusoe is, he's a bit hesitant to believe that something could be up because he has a bit of a, a racist sentiment. But certainly... There's something in the air, and Bone Temps puts a lot of time, almost half the novel, really, into just setting up the, the feel of this agitative, simmering environment ready for revolt. The journalists start to get enough information to suspect that something is going on among the blacks of Virginia. One of them, Alexander Biddenhurst, gets a letter from Melody, who is a biracial kind of saloon worker, bartender. And she informs him that there may be rebellion soon. Sympathetic with this, he does not inform anyone in authority. He actually wants to see this happen. As the first part of the novel ends, the revolt is already is ready to begin, um, but rain begins to fall. Now, without getting into too much detail, the second part of the novel is called My Silver Trumpet, and it's about the attempted revolt itself. The setting is mostly with Gabriel and his troops, both men and women. And as the rain gets worse, it's soon clear that the rebellion will need to be postponed. As one of the conspirators, General John, summarizes, let me find it. He summarizes, To no use, no how. Nothing outdoors this night but wind and water. God helping. Lord of mercy. What's they going to do to my old raw bone self? Here I is halfway twixt town and home and as near played out as ever been. There ain't no called to turn back though after gabriel and ditcher and them get done mopping up it ain't going to be no place for we all but right with the crowd gabriel said it and he said it right do they get whooped us going to have to hit for the mountains anyways there ain't no cause to study around turning back yet still and richmond ain't here for black man tonight much less petersburg no sure not this night so he is despairing about the future of the revolt uh he knows it's they lose their chance if if the rain stops the revolt and they're going to have to flee and hide into the woods. They knew they had just one shot for it and the rain um, stopped it. The, and what it did is it filled up essentially the rivers and they couldn't cross it. So that's the situation. Now Gabriel holds out hope that it can be done, but eventually he also despairs and abandons it. Now, meanwhile, Ben backs out of his role in the conspiracy, which involved him coordinating with another group in another county, Caroline County. He's supposed to go there and talk to them and arrange some things. Um, his confession eventually to his master is not recorded in the novel, but we do get the moment leading up to it. And it's quite heartbreaking as we see how powerfully the institution worked on the minds of slaves such as Ben, undermining their potential for rebellion.
it's just a one-page chapter, chapter 11 of part two, where Mosley Shepherd just looks at his slave, looks at Ben, and knows just from looking at him that something's up, and he says, well, what do you want to tell me? And then he gets on his knees, drops to one knee, his hands resting on the arm of the planter's chair, and began weeping, weeping aloud. And that's all we hear. Um, next, we meet Ben. He's already spilled the beans to his master. But it's 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 a moment in which you learn or you're reminded, you know, that just how deeply into the mind of these people the institution of slavery actually ran, making it making rebellion so difficult for many of them. Now, by the halfway point of this novel, we've already seen the collapse of the conspiracy, and the ultimate fate of the conspirators is well known to anyone who knows the history of it. Um, in fact. You know, we know Gabriel's going to die. We know many of the conspirators are going to die. And we know the slaves are going to be, you know, are going to have a moment of freedom, but that's only a moment. Bonetep's novel is openly mil militant. He has little patience for those who reject freedom for slavery. He has little sympathy for Ben. I think he has some sympathy for Ben, but not that much. Um, he He's praising even the failed rebellion. He's praising failed resistance. It's better than getting on your knees, right? He would later write on Haiti, but I think writing on Gable's revolt is braver because it requires being sympathetic to the failed rebellion at a time when any resistance by African Americans was looked down upon by most of white America. A running motif in, in the story or in the novel is slaves talking about how they would like to be free. This is never presented as a spiritual claim. It's not, I can be free through God, or I can be free through my family, or I can be free through some other means while still being a slave. For them, you know, freedom is something very material, something very concrete, something they, they know very well. Um, they want, they know what they need to do to get it, and it's resistant, it's rebellion. There's, there's no middle ground here, really. Ben maybe tries to find this middle ground, but he fails. He, he he starts the novel as a slave and he ends the novel as a slave. And he never has that moment of true freedom that some of our other characters at least can have through this act of rebellion. In our final scene of this section with Ben, we see him, of course, confessing while on his knee before his master, a sure sign that he has turned his back on freedom. And one other thing to say about the first half of this novel, the first hundred pages, is we get some really nice celebrations of black culture uh, in slavery. Now, I don't think this is primarily a cultural novel like many of the Harlem Renaissance novels are in that way, celebrations of, of the culture of early 20th century um, African-Americans. This novel is not really focusing on celebrating the culture, but it does have these moments where we see, you know, a discussion of them or a presentation of, of this uh, slave culture. Um, really two places. One is in the ceremony for swearing in conspirators. And the second would be Bundy's funeral, um, where the community comes together and buries Bundy. And um, it's really a nice moment. And it seems apparently it was drawn from a life. So it wasn't just something Arna Bontemps made up. He, he drew this from real funerals that slaves um, participated in while, you know, um, at the time or early, late 18th, early 19th century. Okay, so that does it for the first half of Black Thunder. In the next episode, I'll finish up both Black Thunder and this series on the Harlem Renaissance. So thank you so much for listening. Um, if you like this, please rate, subscribe, and share it. Um, let people know about this. Um, and I'll see you in 100 pages.